We're in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 12 and read through 22. I'm reading the New American Standard Bible. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went out to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Thank God for his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are very good to tell us about Jesus and his zeal for your house. May our zeal for you and our zeal for your church and the things about which you care so much grow day by day by day. And may it be helped by the preaching of your word and considering the words of our Lord today. May we be better followers of him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. I have a a dear young friend and brother in Christ whose name starts with Braxton. He has a habit of, when he runs into people here and there, he asks them a question. And the question is, what are you passionate about? That's a really good question. If you get an honest answer to that question, you're going to find out a whole lot about what makes that person tick. And it's also then, of course, a, a great door into a conversation about what makes you tick, about what you're passionate about, and about the one who is worthy of all our passion. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, we find a first-hand account of something that stirred up great passion in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And since you and I are called to be Christ followers, we should probably pay attention to that. We should probably be passionate about the same kinds of things that, that, drive, that drive our Savior and our Master. Actually, passion is too general a word for what is asserted in this passage about Christ. A better word is the word zeal, and that's the word that you find in every major translation, English translation, of this passage in John chapter 2, verse 17. But I believe a better word still is the word jealousy, which actually is the most common translation of the Greek word that's used here everywhere else that it shows up in the New Testament. 
and of the Hebrew word that's being quoted in John chapter 2, verse 17 from Psalm 69. Jealousy. Zeal and jealousy have a lot in common, except that jealousy adds the element of possessiveness. Husbands, if you're at a company Christmas party and uh, you're on one side of the room talking with some friends and you look over to the other side of the room and you see that your wife is in a conversation with the guy who came on board with the company since the last Christmas party and everybody in the office knows him as Brad the Womanizer. And you notice that he's been talking to her for a while and he starts to scoot his chair up a little closer to her. Now, you may trust your wife implicitly, but you're going to stop your conversation and you're going to go over there to the other side of the room and you're going to stick your hand out and say, Hey, Brad, I see you've met. There you go. You're not going to say, I see you've met the fetching Debbie Wright. You're going to say, I see you've met my wife. And the the pronoun there is going to have a lot of significance, right? What do you call that particular class of pronoun? A possessive pronoun. There's a reason for that. In this context, we're going to see that possession, ownership, very much fits into what's being asserted here about the passionate response that Jesus displayed when He saw what men were doing in the earthly temple, his father's house. After a few days with his mother and brothers and disciples at Capernaum in the northern part of Palestine, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You think when people go south, they're they're going down. But he went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the pinnacle. It was the capital of the community of Israel. And it was on a mountain as well. They went up to Jerusalem for the great feast known as the Passover. Now, most of you know what the Passover is, but just by way of quick review, the Passover was an annual celebration in Israel of the most amazing event of deliverance that Israel had experienced up to that point. You guys know about the ten plagues that God poured out upon Egypt when Israel had been enslaved for nearly 400 years in Egypt. In the last plague, just before the last plague, God sent Moses to go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses told Pharaoh, on this particular night at midnight, Yahweh will go through the entire population of Egypt. By the way, five times in that passage it says it was Yahweh who went through the camp, not an angel. Yahweh himself. And he'll take the life of every firstborn male, both among humans and among animals. The only firstborn males who survived that night were those whose dwellings had the opening of the, of the dwelling, the door into the dwelling, whether it be a building or a tent, covered with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the, pass, the Passover lamb. That was an amazing judgment and a miraculous deliverance all in one. Pharaoh's own son died that night. The next day, Israel walked out of Egypt with the spoils of Egypt without having wielded a single weapon. Every year from that 
day forward, Israel was to remember that amazing event. According to verse 14, when Jesus came to Jerusalem at the first of three Passovers during His earthly ministry, He found men from the priestly tribe of Levi selling oxen and sheep and doves. And He found money changers sitting all in the outer courtyard known as the the court of the Gentiles. It was the outermost courtyard surrounding the temple structure. When Jesus saw all this, he made a scourge of cords. That would be like a multi-tailed whip. And with it, verse 15, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And when the disciples witnessed this, they remembered a verse that had been written a thousand years earlier by King David in Psalm 69, verse 9, in which David said, Zeal for thy house will consume me. Now some might conclude from the events that happened that day that Jesus just lost it. That he, he went off the rails. He, he lost control. And he got violent. There is no possible way that that could describe what actually happened. If you look back at what John asserted about Jesus and his relationship to creation in John chapter 1, you know that that could not be what happened. Think about it this way. Jesus is identified in John 1 as the creator of everything that exists. He's identified in Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 as the sustainer of everything that exists. If the one who created everything that exists, including you, with nothing more than a spoken word, and who keeps the earth in its orbit and the atoms in your body together every second, lost his temper, what do you think that might look like? Now, what happened here was amazingly gracious. Our righteous Creator who had every right to be completely unconstrained in His anger was very, very constrained. He won't always be so constrained. But make no mistake, He was angry. He was indignant when He saw what was going on at His Father's house. Why did Jesus take such offense at what He saw? Well, let's work through that a little bit. There were three annual festivals that required that every Jew come from wherever they lived to Jerusalem. That's three times a year. When they came, many of them came from quite some distance and they had to bring animals for sacrifice. Each of the festivals required certain sacrifices. Now it was customary and it was kind and convenient for an Israelite to be allowed to sell some of his most valuable animals while he was still in his home turf and then take the money from the proceeds of that sale, bring it to Jerusalem and buy animals of equivalent value there for the sacrifices. And that was very commonly done. And there was nothing wrong with it. There's nothing in Scripture that condemns that practice. The other 
issue here, the other thing that was going on at the temple is the money changing. Again, this was there was nothing inherently wrong with the money changing. In the, in the Roman Empire, which was quite extensive by this point, there were many different currencies being used to purchase goods. And many of the coins had, had uh, insufficient value to be accepted uh, by the Romans or by the, the, the priests. The silver content in some of these coins was terrible. So... If you wanted to buy an animal, it made sense that the priest, that you were, that whoever you were buying the animal from would want a reasonable exchange. So the first thing you had to do is get your money sorted out. Trade your coins for coins that were recognized. Again, nothing wrong with that. The problem here was not that the Jews were exchanging inferior coins for better ones or selling animals for sacrifice. The problem was where they were doing it and how they were abusing it. Now, some commentators think that the only real issue here was the location, where they were doing it. There's no question that was a big factor in what angered Jesus. All of this buying and selling of animals and exchanging of money was a mundane, worldly distraction from the worship of Yahweh. The worship of Yahweh was supposed to be a setting aside of everything common, everything under the curse, everything that's mundane in order to draw near to the presence of a holy God. But here you had all kinds of noise and chaos in the courtyard surrounding the temple. You had thousands of Israelites buying animals. And you had other thousands of Israelites standing in long lines to exchange currency. And all this was just outside the temple complex, in the center of which was the Holy of Holies, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelled above the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. The holiest structure in the world, made holy by the presence of God. The mixing of the common with the sacred was a great offense to Jesus as it should have been to every true worshiper of Yahweh. But I believe that was only part of the wrongdoing that so angered Jesus on this day. All three of the other gospel accounts record a later, very similar event that happened at another Passover. The last Passover during Jesus' earthly ministry, the one during which He was arrested, tortured, and crucified. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record these words of Jesus as he once again overturned the tables of those selling animals and exchanging money and ran them out of the temple. Here's what he said. He said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. See, this wasn't just business. This was bad business. It wasn't only the location that angered Jesus. The temple authorities, the priests, were robbing the people of God. 
I believe there's good evidence that the priests were using the selling of sacrificial animals and the exchanging of money as a way to systematically rip off even the poorest of the poor among the Israelites. Look at verse 14 and verse 16 in this passage, John 2. Verse 14 says, Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers. But then when you drop down to verse 16, what animals are mentioned? Just doves. He's, he, uh, to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Now, if you, have, if you were trying to summarize all the animals that were being sold in this context, would you pick the least consequential, the smallest, the, the most forgettable? Mm, no, probably not unless you were trying to make a point. If you go to Matthew and to Mark, to their accounts of that overturning of the, the, the uh, tables, in Matthew 21, for instance, verse 12, the only animal mentioned is the doves. Why would that be? Well, here's the thing. The average Jew did not raise doves and pigeons for sustenance or profit as he did sheep and goats and oxen. It's really hard to milk a dove. It would take a whole lot of pigeons to pull a plow, and it'd be really hard to get them to go the direction that you wanted them to go. You're not going to find a dove-down sleeping bag at Academy Sports. And you're not going to find a carton of pigeon eggs at the grocery store, you know, really, really small carton. My dad uh, loved to, to hunt white-winged dove with his friends down in the Rio Grande Valley once a year. So my mom had some recipes that I considered tolerable for cooking dove. But I got to tell you, it took an entire bird to create a chunk of meat the size of my thumb. That's not what you'd call an efficient food source. Probably the only people raising doves for profit in the whole Roman Empire were Jewish priests at the Jerusalem temple. Why would they be doing that? The answer is no reason at all. One of the many compassionate provisions for the poor and downtrodden in the law of Moses was the special provision found in Leviticus chapter 5 and repeated in Leviticus 12. See, aside from the tithes, there were two mandatory categories of offerings. The sin and guilt offerings to pay the penalty for sin, to picture that payment, and the whole burnt offerings that pictured dedication of the whole self to God. The kind of animal that the average Israelite was required to present for each of those two categories of offering was a lamb or a goat. But Leviticus 5 verse 7 says that if the offerer cannot afford a lamb, he shall bring to Yahweh his guilt offering for that in which he has sinned two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. Again, that same provision is restated in Leviticus 12 regarding the purification offering that a woman had to bring on the eighth day after giving birth to a male child. She had to come to the temple and bring an offering. And if she was poor, she could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. You know who did that, according to Scripture? 
Joseph and Mary. On the eighth day after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary, in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, observed the special provision of that gracious law. They offered turtle doves or pigeons, it said, just cites the verse when Mary came for her purification offering and for the dedication of Jesus, the circumcision of Jesus, at this very temple, that means they were poor. And here's how this provision of God was supposed to work. Doves and pigeons were no doubt as plentiful and as ubiquitous, meaning ever-present, as they are today. And they were also almost certainly as dumb as they are today. It's not that hard to catch doves and pigeons. If you can set up a little trap and have some breadcrumbs, you'll probably get some, or a net works as well. See, this was God's way of directly providing what he was requiring. He directly provided for the poor throughout Israel to have the sacrifices that, that he required of them. It was very gracious. But here's the problem. No doubt when a poor widow or orphan or foreigner in the land caught a dove and brought it to the priests in Jerusalem for his sin offering or burnt offering to God, the priest managed to find something wrong with it. Sorry, ma'am. Looks like your dove has part of a feather missing over here on one side. God would never accept such an unworthy specimen. You need to buy one of our Levite certified doves. And you're in luck. Your timing's impeccable because we're having a Passover special two for one. That'll be one Roman standard denarius, please. Oh, ma'am, I'm sorry. Those coins you've got are not going to cut it. Why don't you go over to this other table over here? I know the line's long, but go over to this other table and exchange those for our Levite-certified Roman standard denarius. Oh, and and I hope you brought more coins than you showed me because it's going to take a bunch of yours to equal one of ours. You get the picture? It was bad enough that the priests of Israel had turned the earthly representation of God's dwelling place into a common marketplace. But what I believe made Jesus most furious was they made it a violation of God's just and compassionate character. That's why the doves keep coming up. How would you feel if some someone some smooth-talking salesman set up a kiosk in your front yard and started selling knockoff Rolex watches to all your neighbors. That would be nothing compared to what's going on here. God declared himself throughout the Old Testament to be the advocate for the poor and the downtrodden. That's the God in whose front yard, so to speak, all this was going on. These Jewish officials were ripping off the people of God in Yahweh's name at Yahweh's house. And the real house of Yahweh, the real temple, got very, very angry about it. See, the whole point for having an earthly temple in the first place was to picture God's marvelous promise 
to come and to dwell in the midst of His people. That promise is woven from the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible all the way through to the concluding chapters of the last book of the Bible. God is going to come from heaven to earth and He's going to dwell among His people. I could take you all the way through the Bible and we'd be here all day looking at all that it says about that promise. I won't do that, but I will take you to the end point where the promise gets fulfilled. You can open your Bible, Revelation 21. It's very familiar, but Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, from the throne saying, listen to this, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is among men. And He shall dwell among them and they will be His people and God Himself shall be among them. A few verses later, a little, little later in the chapter, verse 22, describing the city. John is looking at what he's being shown. And he says, I saw no temple in it in the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, I'm not saying that the Jews understood all this when Jesus first arrived on the scene and began his ministry. Clearly they did not. Not even the disciples understood all these things. But this was God's design. This was God's intention. This is why the temple existed. It was a sign. And what are signs for? To point to something far greater. The earthly temple is a picture of the real temple. And the real temple, the real presence of God dwelling in the midst of His people is Jesus, Messiah. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The leaders of the Jews had turned the earthly temple, the ancient picture of Jesus Himself, not just into a common marketplace, but into a violation of His own faithfulness and compassion. And Jesus was both zealous and jealous for the purity of His Father's house. All of this made Him very angry. It's important that we understand why. The Jews demanded that Jesus give them a sign to prove that He had the authority to do something as outrageous as, as what He had just done. <laughs> what sign did Jesus give them? A deferred sign. He didn't do anything right at that moment. No miracle. He pointed to the miracle to come, the greatest sign of all. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They, with their tunnel vision, of course, concluded that he was talking about the Jerusalem temple. So they said, 
it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? What kind of lunatic are you? Verse 21 says Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body, the real temple. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. See, the Son of God and the temple of God are one and the same. Herod's temple in Jerusalem, this temple, was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, nearly 40 years after these events. But just two Passovers, two short years after this day recorded in John 2, the religious leaders of the Jerusalem temple destroyed the real temple the real dwelling place of God in their midst, the body of Jesus Christ. And three days later, true to his promise, Jesus raised that temple from the grave. The real temple is Jesus, and the greatest sign is the resurrection of Jesus because it proves that he is exactly who he claimed to be. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Messiah God. The resurrection of Jesus settled once and for all the question of both His identity and His authority. The one that the grave could not hold, according to Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53, was the promised Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Savior of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the real temple of Yahweh. And there's a critical assignment implicit in this passage for us who belong to Jesus And that's what I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at. It's very clear from Jesus' words and from John's words that it would be utter foolishness to limit the rebuke here to Jewish priests peddling sacrificial animals and swapping coins at the Jerusalem temple 2,000 years ago. Jesus very greatly broadens the scope of what's going on here by his own words. This is about the rightly placed zeal of Jesus. His zeal for the house of God. And there's no shortage of zeal in the world. We've all gotten to see that in living color over the last few weeks, right? Zeal is not something that's hidden. Zeal makes you speak boldly, defend fiercely, and act decisively. Sometimes zeal drives you to anger and compels you to act on that anger. People get zealous for all kinds of things. And overwhelmingly, the zeal of men and women and children is wasted on unworthy objects. It's squandered because it's misplaced. 
Some are zealous about dietary supplements or six-pack abs or video games or NFL football. Some are zealous about much more noble things like caring for the poor and downtrodden or ending the trafficking of children. Causes that reflect the character of our God are worthy of our zeal. Causes that don't aren't. But beloved, how many people do you know who are zealous for God's house? Jesus was and is, and if we're true followers of Jesus, shouldn't we be zealous for the same things that drove our Savior and Master? Well, where is the temple, the house of God now? Where's this dwelling place of God in the midst of his people? It's not in Jerusalem. If you and I are going to share our Lord's zeal for that house, don't we need to know where it is? Well, later in this gospel, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells us exactly where it is. Right now. John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And then verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode, our dwelling place with him. Our Trinitarian God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in His redeemed people. So where is the present house of God on earth for which we are to be zealous? It's right here. It's not this building. It's these people. And it's all the people of God throughout the entire world We together are the temple of God in this cursed world. Now, we are His dwelling place. How then does zeal for the house of God display itself in us? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20 says this. It says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 4 to 5. 
you adulteresses, this is talking to believers, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, saying, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. 1 Peter 2, 1-5 Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, and coming to Him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is all temple terminology. This is all about the dwelling place of God. The day is soon coming when the true and perfect temple will come once again from heaven to earth. But for now, we're it. We are the temple of God, the dwelling place of Christ Himself. We are the spiritual house of God here on earth. What will our lives be like if we are zealous and jealous for that temple the same way that Jesus is? Well, we'll happily forsake the things of this world to preserve the purity of God's dwelling place. Individually, even in the most secret of places, we will preserve that purity. Even if I am in a room in front of my computer and the only ones in the room are me and God, I will preserve the purity of God's dwelling place. We will flee from self and we will cling to Christ whose house we are. Corporately, in all of our dealings with one another, in our worship together, in our ministry to each other, in our correction of one another, whether our interactions are pleasant or agonizing, we will zealously preserve the purity and unity of Christ's body, God's dwelling place on earth among fallen men. We are the the display of Christ on this earth to draw lost people to Christ. We will be fiercely protective of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will forgive one another as we have been forgiven by God in Christ. We will love one another as we have been loved by God in Christ. We will forbear toward one another as God forbears with us every minute of every day. And we will not allow anything, not even the most controversial election in our lifetimes, to tear brick from brick in the household of God. We will not allow it if we are zealous and jealous for God's house. We will not allow it. 
We will protect God's household from every intrusion and every threat that comes from the mundane, worthless, condemned, cursed things of this world. And what, finally, what will that rightly placed zeal get us? (laughs) The same thing it got Jesus. The psalm that came to the disciples' minds when they saw what happened here was Psalm 69. It's one of many messianic psalms written by King David. In those psalms, David wrote words that weren't fulfilled by him. They were fulfilled a thousand years later. Some of them weren't fulfilled yet. They'll be fulfilled when Jesus comes again. But they're all fulfilled in in Messiah, in Christ. In that psalm, what did Messiah's zeal for God's house get him? Well, let's finish the verse that's quoted here. Psalm 69, 9. For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, Father, have fallen upon me. The word for consumed means eaten up. It means devoured. It's talking about the consequence to Jesus of his zeal for the house of God. And the second half of the verse amplifies the meaning of that word consumed. It says, The reproaches of those who reproach you fell upon me. If you and I are zealous to preserve the holiness of our own physical bodies as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, if we are zealous to protect the holiness and unity of this body, the body of Christ, as the God-ordained bearer of Christ to this world, Here's what we can be sure we will get for it. The reproaches that this world hurls toward God will fall upon us. The insults, the accusations, the mockery, the anger, the blasphemy of those who love the darkness and shake their fists at Almighty God will fall upon us. And that makes us sharers indeed in the sufferings of Christ. And beloved, that is the greatest privilege you will ever have during your short time on this earth, to share in the sufferings of Christ that you may share in His eternal glory. We're not here to enjoy a shield of cultural acceptability or of freedom from persecution. Beloved, if we are as Jesus is in this world, we will suffer as Jesus did in this world. And that's when we'll know that we're getting this right. That's when we'll know that our zeal is not wasted, but is rightly placed. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Pray with me. Dear Father, make us zealous and jealous for your dwelling place on this earth, the house that we are, until we stand spotless in your presence at the perfect and eternal temple, the house that Jesus is. And it's in his precious name that we pray.